0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times, a podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. This week, a philosopher, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, and an author discuss the role of love and hate in modern society taking on everything from our personal relationships to meaningful foreign policy. Michael Crick hosts.
1: We think of love as an indisputable force for good, yet from Jihadi John to uh, Anders Breivik, uh, extremists often cite love of creed or country to justify their atrocities. Might love of a person or a group also be the origin of prejudice and hatred towards others? Are love and hatred forever entwined, as Sigmund Freud uh, suggested? Renata Seletzel, um, who is a philosopher, a sociologist, and a legal theorist. Rowan Williams, Lord Williams of Oystermouth, is the... Uh, former Archbishop of Canterbury, a job he held for 10 years, and now Master of uh, Magdalen College, Cambridge. Robert Roland Smith uh, is a Quandam Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. His books include Breakfast with Socrates, and uh, more recently, uh, Autobiophilosophy. And I'll start with Renata
2: i don 't think that uh, love and hate are always necessarily linked. Uh, we might have love without hate and you know hate without love. However, quite often they do uh, you know sort of come together and especially in human relationships. Uh, French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan famously said that in love we see in the other you know what he doesn't or she doesn't have, and we also give to the other, you know, what we don't have, Uh, but actually we give to the other something that the other quite often doesn't want. (laughs) And (laughs) which is why the fascination with that X that we observe in the other and what we also want to give quite often goes from, you know, kind of a perception that this X in the other is something sublime to the perception that it is something disgusting. And I remember as a student, a fellow student, a colleague told me that, you know, whenever he falls in love, he loves observing a woman, how she drinks coffee, how she slowly sips coffee, and that's for him the most sublime gesture. Now, when he falls out of love with the same woman, this is the most disgusting gesture (laughs) he's horrified by. I think, um, in Freudian psychoanalysis, we had an optimism that maybe maternal love would be without hate. However, post-Freudians were quick to note that even maternal love quite often oscillates between love and hate. However, they didn't want to use the term hate. They called ambivalence. They said that people have ambivalent relationships towards their own children, and in a way, if they have, that's quite good, because the real problem for the child is if he or she is the ultimate object of love or the ultimate object of hate, because in both cases, the child cannot easily separate from the mother or the father. Now, the problem in today's society is that we have quite an ideology which teaches us that we can love others only if we love ourselves. But the underside of this ideology is actually that we have an increase of self-hate. So more and more people uh, are complaining about themselves, criticizing themselves, feeling anxious that they are not good enough, to the point of you know, in, inflicting all kinds of self-punishment to, the, to themselves. In today's society, we also have a kind of an illusion that maybe with the help of new technologies, we will be able to sort of come closer to some kind of ideas of love. And, you know, not long ago I was at the conference on genetics where an entrepreneur there was explaining that he is about to finish an app which will really solve dating problems. His idea is that he will combine Tinder or you know, similar kind of apps with sort of a, a particular kind of a genetic app. His idea is that in the future we will very cheaply get our genome decoded, and wouldn't it be great when we go on a date, that after the date we get really the information of which kind of illnesses might await the future <laughs> partner, and if we reproduce what kind of dangers uh, you know, are for our children, maybe genetic illnesses are lurking there. And I asked the guy, do you really think that after the first date people want this kind of information? <laughs> and he said, why would you want to waste time with someone who with bad genes? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Rowan Williams, do you agree with all of that? Most of it, actually, yes. Um, because it seems to me that love is one of those words which we throw around very freely and very sentimentally without much thought about the risks in much of our use of it. We think that love is essentially a matter of strong individual attachment and that very easily turns into something which is a source of strong affirmation for myself and goes alongside strong aversion for the other. And in both of the spiritual traditions that I I value, well, I value lots, but particularly, I think, um, my own Christian tradition, but what I've also learned from Buddhism, there's a sort of skepticism here about living your life on this pendulum between strong attachment and strong aversion. And there's something else, I think, going on that we have to live our way into, which is called love, mostly because it's not destructive, it's not, cannibalizing of the other. And I found a, a useful text for that when recently on um, an airplane I was watching Greta Govig's film Lady Bird, which some of you I think will have seen, and the elderly nun at one point in that film points out to um, young Lady Bird, Christine, that the way she writes about Sacramento, this town which she says she hates, suggests that she loves it because she's paying attention. Mm-hmm. She's paying intense attention to the particularity of it. And says, m- well, maybe that's, you know, that's love. Now, to take another French writer, I mean, Lacan's remarks are very pertinent, but going back a bit further, Simone Weil, one of the great mid-century French philosophers, speaks very eloquently in terms of how attention is what we constantly have to learn, because attention is what takes us away from the focus on the strength of our feeling and into the sheer density, the sheer thereness of the other. It's self-forgetful, not self-obliterating, but if I'm utterly preoccupied with attending, and that's what happens when a musician performs it, what what happens in personal love, what 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 happens in a number of other contexts, my ego, and its agenda is, for that moment, parked. I'm taken up with something that's not simply confined by my wants, my intensity of my feelings, and th- the result is, ideally, we, we grow together, myself and the, the object of, of the attention. So I think that's that's where I'd want to start in talking about a love that isn't just about intense subjectivity, which isn't just about oceans of positive feeling washing around, and which certainly is very sceptical about all those, um, let's say, very aware of all those risks which Renato has just spoken of in terms of making the other perform my script in one way or another. Thank you very much indeed. Robert.
4: Thanks, Michael. Well, I'd like to pick up, actually, on what Rowan has just said about attention. It wasn't where I was going to start, but it, uh, I was paying such attention. I want to start with uh, <laughs> attention. Um, it reminds me of a series of experiments that this, I suppose, quite controversial Japanese man called Matsui did in uh, Japan. I, I don't know how long, 10 years ago. Um, he recorded the effect of different sounds and uh, behaviors on water and on water crystals. Anyway, there's one particular experiment where he's He's looking at the effects of human behavior, and this sounds absolutely mad, but anyway, he's looking at the effects of human behavior on rice. (laughs) So he has this experiment where in his hallway he has three jars of rice. It's the same rice from the same packet emptied into three different containers. And on one, uh, when he leaves the house each morning and comes back, to the first one he says, I love you. To the second one he says, I hate you. And the third one he ignores completely, and he yeah. <laughs> and uh, over time he maps the uh, effect of this, and uh, the first jar to begin to decay, the rice that begins to deteriorate, is the one that's paid no attention at all. Which suggests to me actually that that perhaps you know we think of love and hate as being opposites. Perhaps actually the true opposite of love is indifference. Uh, it's not giving any attention, to, to use your word, at all. And uh, for me, actually, that's one of the many ways in which uh, probably love and hate are more intimately connected than we, th- they th- than we might think they are. Um, for a start, I don't really believe that hatred is a primary emotion in a way that love is. In other words, I think that hate arises as a reaction to something. And I say that just not as a matter of principle, but I, I'm also thinking of psycho- psychoanalysts. You talked about post Freudians. I was thinking about Melanie Klein as you were talking. She does use the word hate, actually, in relation to, yeah. to young babies. And she says they will, even quite young babies, ex- experience feelings of hatred towards their mothers when they're not picked up or fed or, or held. But it's not a primary emotion. It's a reaction to the interruption of the loving bond in some way. So although we might think almost statically that, you know, love is here and and hatred is there, that they're in some sort of spatial relationship, you can almost think of them as in a temporal relationship. Love comes first and then hatred is a kind of reaction to it, a sort of revenge on aborted love or a disappointment at love not getting off the ground or something like that. So hatred has a sort of, almost has a mourning for the impossibility of love Kind of contained within it as if we most spontaneously or most primarily would seek a love position having said that i think uh, to be pure and i'm not suggesting it's possible but to be pure i mean love would have to hate the hateable as well because if you only love what's lovable if you love what's lovable in your partner well that's easy there's no challenge in loving what's lovable Presumably, it's only when you are confronted with what's hateable or extremely hard to love that the gesture of love becomes authentic in some way. So, um, you know, in philosophical terms, this would be the idea of including the other, you know, the, the radical otherness of the other person is such that I hate them. But even in the midst of my hating them, I then learn to love them because their otherness is something which I can then begin to come to terms with. So it's an otherness that allows the other person in all their horribleness to remain other.
1: Robert, thank you very much indeed. Well, what I'd like to do now is to move on to the, the first of the, the three themes of the uh, debate. And theme one is to, to talk about what is love and are we right to think about uh, it as indisputably a, a force for good? Renata, what do you think?
2: Um, To the second question, no. (laughs) Not necessarily a force for good. Uh, To the first question, in the intersubjective uh, meaning, uh, you know, love uh, is, I I would say, quite often perceived as an idealization um, of the other, you know, especially in the kind of romantic uh, tradition. But in psychoanalytic uh, theory, we, from the beginning, you know, read about the complication in the intersubjective relationships to sort of kind of unite this idealization with desire and with drive. So quite often we nowadays perceive that another person, our partner, needs to fulfill all this, you know, has to be our object of desire, uh, some kind of an enjoyment, uh, sexual enjoyment, and we in some way hope that we will also idealize the person or look up um, at him or her. However, as already Freud and F- Lacan and other post-Freudians uh, noticed, it is very hard to unite all this in one person, which is why you know, some t- people split easily. They can idealize love a person, but not desire or not find a sexual fulfillment uh, in that person. And in our times, I think we quite often forget that you know, this romantic fiction of love is very temporary, it doesn't last long, and also that one person cannot easily fulfill all these three dimensions.
1: So, your, so love for you involves a, a, a large amount of fantasy?
2: Absolutely. And, and, it and, when, it it and when it
1: goes wrong?
2: it is quite often turns into hate but also in some way to quote again from Lacan he said you know i love you but because i love you in you something more than your yourself i destroy you you know quite often there is this kind of a negative part you know which is the underside precisely of the romantic ideas of love
1: so does love always involve fantasy
2: Yes, I think that in the, interdisciplinary, in, in the intersubjective dimension it does. And it is when the fantasy collapses, that quite often we either turn to indifference, which can be, I agree, much more painful than hate, because with hate we still pay attention, you know, with indifference we don't. And indifference can be a serious punishment for the other. And unfortunately, with indifference, we do treat our children, you know, our rules about punishment is quite often time out, <laughs> you know, ignoring other, which is the third element in this, you know, love-hate relationship.
1: What do you think of that, Robert? I mean, do you, do you agree with the, 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 the idea of fantasy and love that Renata is...
4: I do, uh, and you know Freud talks about love rather dismissively as just the uh, idealisation of the other, the overestimation of the object is his precise phrase, which is rather brutal. But I was thinking actually the other kind of, um, I guess the the atmosphere or the context around this question you know, is love a force for good. And on my drive here today, I was thinking that the word haters was mentioned on the on the radio, and I thought the word haters wasn't in common parlance quite as much ten years ago. Now. It's used quite a lot. You know, where's it come from? The word haters seems to me to be part of a general sort of uh, concern globally. I think perhaps initiated by people like Donald Trump and so on to retreat into a kind of protectionism or isolationism, which is rather despairing and treats the rest of the world as potential enemies. So that's the kind of atmosphere I think we're we're operating in. And, you know, haters are supposed to be kind of people of that variety. But it's not necessarily hate that we're talking about in that case. We are talking about people trying to protect themselves for one reason or another. So again, if we're looking for ways of defining love and hate or uh, coming to terms with them, perhaps the, you know, another opposite to love you know, in, as well as indifference would be actually this self-protecting mechanism. It's like when we, we can't love, it's too scary, we become vulnerable, we open ourselves, and actually then we close up. And so globalisation as a phenomenon which forces us to open up becomes very scary you know, to certain people um, for quite understandable reasons, I think, in lots of cases. And so, you know, it's uh, the opposite of love becomes kind of self-closing.
1: Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I mean, Donald Trump would no doubt argue, and uh, uh, fervent supporters of Brexit would no doubt argue that their their hatred of uh, that any hatred in their in their platform was based on a love of America, a love of American values, uh, a love of British values, and so on.
4: Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's a sort of an old argument that you can only sort of define yourself against the other, you know, uh, in some sort of dialectic. I don't think it has to be has to be true. You know, you can be patriotic without despising French people.
2: But precisely <laughs> in, in patriotism, you often see, you know, how you know leaders who love their country so much, you know, that they, they usually they destroy it at the end. You know, one of the biggest uh, lovers of the countries, you know, in the former communist times was Ceauses- Ceausescu. His idea was constantly he loves you know the country so much, but you know <laughs> he really left complete destruction.
3: But I think that's that's a case of this intense attachment. It's not it's not about um, an active will for the good of what's really other. It's the attachment which reinforces my own boundaries, my own solidity because of underlying fear, yeah. and love is is sort of tangled in with that. All the time, but it's interesting. We, we've now identified, I think, three opposites for love: hate, indifference, and fear. And to see how they connect up, I think, is is very interesting because that's that's where, I guess, we're challenged to see how even within love, those things enter in. How love produces the the violent disappointment and reaction. How indifference becomes a powerful punishment because. It's the withdrawal of something already experienced, how fear undermines. And that's where I, like a theologian, I suppose, want to go to the sort of meta level and say, well, beyond all that, is there some attitude, some stance towards the other which is not about rewards and punishments, which is not about conditionality, which is sheer attention to what's there? And that, it seems to me, is something we learn quite a bit about from the way the the artist works very often. I think it was um, John Bailey, wasn't it, Iris Murdoch's husband, who wrote a book about the novel called Characters of Love, in which he he looked at the way in which novelists do or don't actually love the particularity of the characters they create, how much space they give them in in their imagination. And uh, another quote from uh, Rilke, Talking about Cezanne, he doesn't paint I like it, he paints There It Is. That seems to me a, an instance of, of love in the what I'm calling the meta sense. How how we how we derive some oh, some standard, some horizon against which to measure the the failures, the distortions of the love we experience, something that gives us the space to look even at our own failures in love, truthfully and without.
1: I'm I'm interested in in what Renata has to say about uh, the the way in which we build up a a, a fantasy picture of uh, the people we love um, on a one-to-one basis, and it seems to me that in politics the same things happen. Same thing happens. We leaders emerge from time to time that we all that suddenly uh, achieve an an extraordinary adulation. I mean, you know, Obama and and Tony Blair would, would would be, or Bill Clinton, I would even. Uh, would be g- good examples of that, and then when it goes wrong, people feel betrayed uh, in the same way that they do on the individual level uh, in, in, uh, in in one-to-one relationships.
2: Yes, exactly. And here we we cannot say that people you know necessarily love uh, their leaders, but they identify with them, and maybe they identify with them as an authority precisely because they are full of anxiety themselves and you know especially leaders who appear to uh, lack anxiety who appear to know can be this kind of points of identification more and more which is why unfortunately the space is wide open for authoritarian leaders you know and you know i'm quite afraid of this kind of attachments and the search for the leaders who have lack of doubt and especially a lack of self-criticism. And unfortunately, you know, leaders that you mentioned and leaders that we have now, uh, you know, from Putin to Trump and others appear that kind of leaders, you know, who are lacking doubt, who appear Uh, authorities but in times of high anxiety you know it is not surprising that people are searching for some kind of a stability and of course it is not surprising that their attachment very quickly turns to criticism disgust and you know we should not forget that disgust is quite often related to hate
1: let me let me move on to the second theme which is are conflicts and prejudice
3: inevitable consequences of love ron williams they're an inevitable consequence, I think, of certain kinds of love. The love that is tied in with with fear, the need to project and to police boundaries. Um, if what love means is, is that, and if it's um, something restricted to what, what's like me, what reminds me of me, what reassures me of me, conflict is, of course, inevitable. And that's where it's, as I say, counterintuitive to say that Love in its essence, or what I'd regard as its essence, is something which causes the ego, individual or collective, just to park itself. You are so focused on what the claim is of what's in front of you, that you don't your, your energy is not wasted on defending, on policing and all the rest of it. But to get to that point, I think is well. It's a lifetime's work. I, I was thinking earlier on of um, Eliot in the in Little Gidding, the last of the four quartets, talking about the, the three conditions which look alike and flourish in the same hedgerow: attachment and detachment and indifference. And he says you begin by valuing where you are and your your environment because that's where you are. You move beyond it and find that that's no longer the determinative thing. It's not unimportant, he says, and that's very significant. It doesn't just vanish. You don't stop being where you are, who you are, with your, your networks, your relationships, what's made you what you are. But that's not the focus. It's not what defines your interaction, your relation to others. So, so long as we leave love unexamined, so long as we don't look candidly at the failures and dangers of love as we experience it, we are going to be stuck with this this cycle, I think. That's why I say that we we're summoned to love the unlovable in ourselves, which includes our own failures in love.
4: I actually want to push back a bit on the um, implicit idea in what you asked that conflict is a bad thing. It Seems to me there are different kinds of conflict. There's safe and there's unsafe conflict, essentially. Unsafe conflict happens when people get very anxious with one another and can't contain the emotions in the room and fear the worst will happen. It becomes an almost apocalyptic scenario and uh, often you'll get one party who becomes antagonistic and one who withdraws, and the communication essentially breaks down. And that for me would be unsafe conflict and source of a lot of fear. But with groups, particularly teams who run organisations, other groups who come together occasionally to perform a task, you can also have actually very safe conflict where people feel perfectly at liberty to say, Disagree, that's wrong, I don't like it, I don't like it because of this, I don't like it because of that. Defend your argument, you know, come back with why that I, sh- why I should believe anything you're saying. It's not said in a particularly hostile way, but it's said in a very direct way, and it's contained, as it were, by the protocol understood in the room. There are some working, I think it's Beyond, isn't it, who talks about the working assumptions in a group. that you know... Uh, things will generally be okay here today, like we have a working assumption in this room here and now that you know there 'll be a, a talk up here and there 'll be some questions, and nobody 's going to get up and stab one another, so you know th- they're kind of working
1: <laughs> so it 's <laughs> constructive <laughs> constructive competition rather
4: constructive than... Constructive? yeah, yes. well yeah even
3: more like than like. constructive competition yes. i think it 's a bit more than that it's it 's saying disagreement won't kill us exactly and that that 's another of those paradoxes conflict doesn 't necessarily kill you if you know that the other is not so frightened that they want you off the scene. In other words, a good conflict is one where the the abrasion of the other is seen as as positive, as not final, as something to be negotiated, worked through, and the safety comes, I I suppose, in knowing that, yep, that is what the walls of the room hold, that in this context, even a radical disagreement doesn't mean a zero-sum game.
2: I think that for the child to be, you know, to feel loved, uh, you know, quite often is a prerequisite to be able to also go into a conflict mm-hmm. with parents. You know, if you are secured uh, in your love, then you can also pose the other without being afraid that that will be like the end of the relationship, or without having the need to bluff and kind of officially agree with parents and, you know, uh, silently think opposite things.
1: Okay, let's, let's move on to the third theme, which is this. Is it possible to have a world that is just based on love and free from tribal prejudice? Uh, is, can, can, can one achieve that? Uh, and if so, what would it look like?
3: Would it be desirable? Rowan Williams? Well, I have a sort of historic prejudice in favour of the kingdom of heaven, which i suppose <laughs> 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 What you're talking about in a way. Um, which means it's a question always on the edge of our moral vision, where looking at a a world of destructive conflict, of rivalry, of fear and so forth, we constantly say it does not have to be like this, it is not written in the laws of nature that we are tied into these cycles of retaliation and terror. Um, Realising it, that alternative, is not something that's ever reducible, I think, to a a single programme, which is why the work is always ongoing, but to believe that, at the very least, it's not fated that we are stuck in these cycles. I think that's that's crucially important. That's part of my religious belief, it's part of my political belief too, that whatever it looks like, we're not stuck. And that means that here and here and here, you can perhaps see what it might be like for something to break through and reinforce that sense of what's possible. We're not very good I think these days at telling good political stories and good solid stories, realistic stories about where reconciliation or justice or the the withering away of fear and prejudice, where those have happened. We need to to recycle such stories. We need sometimes to look at incidents, I was thinking of American presidents and political leaders, Jimmy Carter lost an election and lost credibility because he admitted he got something wrong. What needs to happen in the psyches of people to allow them to look at a leader and say, she or he has, has admitted error, thank God, you know, they're a member of the human race. Um, and that's something which allows us to trust and to grow with them rather than the opposite. Well. Um, I'm not holding my breath, but I think that's the kind of exercise we're we might be into. Well, my, my own view is that it, it, not much needs to change in
1: people's psyches. I think people would be much more welcoming of that than, than, than feeling that their political leaders were uh, deceiving themselves all the time, that they have ne- had never ma- made an error. You'd, you'd think so, wouldn't you? And yet, look at some of the people who get elected. Yeah. And,
3: and <laughs> but
1: but, but wouldn't, wouldn't a world, though, that was purely based on love and there was no prejudice and there was no hatred be a pretty dull world, and actually a world where civilization uh, p- perhaps didn't advance as quickly as,
3: as, the, as, as the world we live in. But I think I take that back to the question of, of conflict, you yeah. know, creative and constructive conflict, where you can trust a partner not to be out for your destruction, where you can have that abrasion, that grit in the, in the oyster that produces effects. I think one of the great propaganda successes of hell is the idea that goodness is more boring than, than the opposite. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> Robert? Yeah, I mean, uh, of course you'd sound like a hopeless hippie, wouldn't you, if you thought that you know, universal, love is, possible, <laughs> <laughs> universal <laughs> love is all <laughs> you need. But <laughs> I was thinking, as you were talking about uh, children and how children play, and often they uh, play actually when they feel they belong. They you know they feel securely held in some way, and that allows them actually to go off and sort of there's a kind of paradox at the heart of play really. You know, the more securely held they are, the more they're allowed to be creative actually. So uh, whether or not I suppose the question is, you know, if we think about universal love as an end in itself, it does sound a bit hippy dippy. But if we think about it as the condition for creativity or play or whatever you want to call it, then suddenly that sort of changes its urgency or changes of the kind of agenda around it. You know, it's what releases people to do other stuff. Because, of course, at one level, love is an end in itself. But it's not everything. You know, there are ways in which people can express themselves, create and do things and so on. So I think um, in order to create that environment, we can actually we don't have to go onto the global stage. We can do things at more local levels in order to do that. We strengthen our relationships. People become freer the more secure they are with one another the more they're able to do that it, it it releases that kind of fear you were talking about that people get into when they're in conflict with one another and there you know from that other possibilities arise i think
1: but can can no good come out of hate
2: i think uh, that some good can come out of hate you know that the hate can mobilize people for you know let's say good causes for some common causes we uh, might uh, hate uh, authoritarian leaders enough to mobilize you know against them to try to change something so I don't think that hate per se should be hated <laughs> you know I think there are values uh, in the emotions that hate can steer in in some people and uh, you know whether can we only love another, you know, that was a question which Freud asked himself, you know, um, how come that people cannot love their neighbor? You know, is it possible uh, to make them love? And he said that throughout civilization, people were trying to figure out how to love the neighbor and all kinds of ideals of love were propagated, identification and so on, but unfortunately it failed. And I think it's still a problem that quite often those who are the closest to us, who are very similar to us, are the ones towards whom, because our own inner conflicts, you know, we externalize hate, disgust, and sometimes indifference. Can
4: I just pick up on what Renata said? Because I think that's true. I think there, is, there are some clues in hate as well, because hate does create a bond between people. There's arguably more energy in hate than there is in love. You know, it's, there's a resource in it. And often a hatred for somebody <coughs> expresses or disguises a kind of secret attachment. And if you can actually probe as to what the nature of that attachment is, you can displace the hatred into something else, but you've got to kind of go through it in order to find that. You can't just say, hate's negative, let's get rid of it. You've got to find what is the source of the connection to the person you're hating. Because often it's quite visceral, it's very real, it's very alive in people. Not something that can just be dismissed, I think. Okay. So I think there are clues in that, in hate.
3: Actually, yeah, I, d- I think it's it's true that hate can can serve the good in in a number of ways, which we've been hearing about. One is simply prompting us to reflect on on the cost of a cycle of hatred. You know, we look at it in in others, in in the world. We think that's what it looks like when it's not thought, when it's not reflected on, when it's not consciously appropriated. And when we look at how hate works in our own lives, our own experience, then I think we we learn. We see, so that's where that comes from. So that's how we understand some of the, you know, the violence that's around us. We, We have something to move on from. But in itself, I would say, hate is corrosive. Someone who is frozen in that is somebody who is, if you like, hug- hugging acid to their own soul. And that's, it's not, not any kind of Pollyanna-ish optimism that would make me say, uh, we, we can't live that. Hate kills. Do you yeah. agree, Renato? Yes,
2: and uh, quite often it kills the one who hates, you know, which is why this yeah, self-hate exactly, exactly. is so much on the rise.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, uh, Renata. Thank you, Rowan. And thank you, uh, Robert. I think uh, the conclusion is it's a lot more complicated than we may have thought.
0: We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Thank you. What do you think? Tweet us at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times.